Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Richard Harris is the Chief Strategy Officer of Nimbus Healthcare and the Medical Director of Scripted. In this episode, we talk about what is personalized medicine, how AI can be game-changing in medicine, what brought him to health tech and how clinicians can help, how would he build the perfect medical model, and how he decides on what he invests in. This is a jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Zane. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, hey, so for people that don't know who you are, do you guys do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever people ask me about what do I do? It's kind of like, well, this is a tough question to answer because by training, I'm an internal medicine physician and pharmacist, but that's not what I do now. Nowadays, I do consulting. I work with health tech startups and supplement companies. I also work uh, and do public speaking. So I'm a professional speaker. I do investing. And then I have two main software slash tech startups. One is Script Health. We are a SaaS platform for pharmacist prescriptive authority. And then the other one is Nimbus Healthcare. We are a direct-to-consumer uh, precision medicine, personalized medicine company in the hair restoration and hormone optimization space. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, you're definitely a glutton for punishment, huh? First at PharmD, then MD. Now you're in startups. Like <laughs> None of that is uh, the path of least resistance, I should say. No, I always like to take the path that no one else took, and I always like to inflict as much hardship on myself as possible just to make myself grow and challenge myself and actually uh, when i started my first business it was a functional medicine clinic i was working nights at a major hospital and then i was also about to start my mba so that that just kind of shows you the, the the stuff that i like to do to myself yeah no i mean i think that's a that's also like a common theme not like that level of masochism that you're inflicting on yourself. But I mean, I think there's a common theme with people that are successful is they constantly are pushing themselves and making themselves feel really uncomfortable and pushing themselves to the limit to just grow and just be better in the, in the end. I completely agree. You know, whenever I was at the lowest point in my life was when I fell into the comforts of being a physician. You know, I had a 300 K salary a year. I, I had nice clothes and, all these lavish vacations and all that kind of stuff. And I was miserable, absolutely miserable. And it wasn't until I started to change my mindset and look at what do I really want out of life and not what do I think I'm owed, but what can I earn out of life that things really changed for me and set me on the path that I'm on now. Yeah, no, um, that's kind of similar to mine, uh, my journey as well. I just wasn't I just felt like I was just clocking in, clocking out, getting a paycheck and not really helping or doing anything that was that I really sought out to do. And that's kind of why I just took that's kind of why I took the path I did. But I would love to learn a little bit more about Nimbus and Script. Uh, we can maybe start with Nimbus first. You want to you kind of said it was um, 
for hair loss and male hormones. Would you want to go in a little bit more into that? Yeah. So it's kind of multi-tiered, uh, our approach. So we started off with something that most people had awareness of, right? Because we wanted to introduce people to what personalized medicine, precision medicine, whatever you want to call it, is. Because I had done this in my functional medicine clinic. I did extensive genetic testing, biomarker testing, and created customized programs for people. But it's expensive. To see an integrative medicine doctor, on average, it costs about $1,200 for the initial consult. Or you may pay that before you even see the doc. And that's just that one-time visit. So we wanted to take that model, that personalized touch, and apply it in a way that everybody can understand. And so people ask me, why hair? And I said, well, number one, it's something that most people are acutely aware of. They realize when they're losing their hair, right? It's not like prediabetes or hypercholesterolemia or hypertension where most people don't feel anything. So we wanted something that people could be aware of, realize they have a problem. And then most people don't realize that hair loss is associated with all kinds of bad stuff. Uh, increase in depression, increase in anxiety, decrease work performance, decrease sexual performance. And in fact, androgenic alopecia or male pattern or female pattern baldness is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular outcomes. So when I started to look at all of this, I said, this is a great gateway. And so we're going to introduce people to personalized medicine. We're going to get them feeling better about themselves. And then on the back end, they have access to all of the lifestyle medicine stuff that I created for my business. So not they think they're getting just their hair treated, but they're also getting robust nutrition, exercise, stress management information, mindset information all through in their portal that they get for being a subscriber. And then hormones as well, because that's something that most people know about. And we take a, a far different approach. There's a lot of really shady going out in the hormone space right now. All of those low T centers. And man, I saw a 30-year-old kid come into the hospital with a stroke because he was going to a low T center. They weren't checking his hemoglobin and hematocrit. Came in there. And I think his hemoglobin was like 21 or 22. It's like one of the highest I've ever seen, right? Most people are walking around around like 13, 14, 15 right? So that just puts that into perspective. And I told him that he had a stroke because of his testosterone, because they weren't doing the things correctly. And I'd seen that over and over again. So we went into the hormone route, because again, awareness, right? We don't have to spend a whole lot of marketing to convince people that there's a problem there. Most people are aware. And two, the most of the places that are doing it are not doing it correctly. Or let's say you're a woman, you go to your PCP, hey, I want to get my hormones checked. Your PCP has no idea what to do with your hormones. So they just tell you, oh, you're getting older. It's part of menopause, right? So we saw all of these problems in that we had been in the hormone space, myself and my partner for more than a decade, that we thought we could do something about. And that was Nimbus. And we're going to evolve this out into other things as well. We got some really cool service lines that we're going to probably have by the end of the year again, in that personalized space, utilizing genetics and biomarkers. Yeah, um, kind of on like a real tangent, I went down this weird rabbit hole with um, testosterone, you know, the whole liver thing, king thing that happened and all that stuff. And the amount of young kids that are, quote unquote, you know, they're, they're doing it under the guise of, oh, I have low testosterone. And the amount of people that are just giving them just like steroids is insane to me. Like I didn't realize how not only I don't even if the, how big of a problem it is and how like openly 
it's just happening. Yeah, it is. I mean, you go to these low T centers and they'll be like, oh, your testosterone 600. That's not optimal. I'm like, what? Why are you putting some 25 year old who's got a testosterone of 600, 700 on testosterone? And they're not properly counseling them on the risks that you're shutting down your endogenous testosterone production. And we've seen this from bodybuilders and people who have been on it for a long time. You may not recover your own testicular function, or it may be severely diminished. So now you put yourself way behind because somebody put you on testosterone and didn't counsel you on on the problems. And then even then, there are other highly viable alternatives to it. There are supplements that actually work that have randomized controlled data that they increase testosterone. Ashwagandha and Longjack or uh, Tangadali are, are two of those. A randomized controlled trial show they increase testosterone. Or you can use clomiphen or enclomiphen. That increases testosterone, or you can use HCG. That increases testosterone, but none of those are going to shut down your endogenous, you know, own testosterone production. So there's a lot safer ways to do it. And you know, if someone comes in, they have a testosterone of 600. I'm like, the problem is not your testosterone. There's something else going on. It's not testosterone. You're not having these symptoms because you have a 600 testosterone. Let's investigate something else. Yeah, no, and I think also, I mean, you can probably speak to this a little bit more. I mean, just in general, like precision medicine and um, personalized medicine, you know, like I think our lifestyle also has a lot to do with it, right? Um, you know, we're much more sedentary as we used to be before, right? I mean, there's like this huge, you know, thing about like, oh, males just have less testosterone now than they did before. What is the biggest difference? It's our diet and our activity, right? I mean, that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. There was a study that was published recently where they looked at people who had a healthy lifestyle and they looked at their testosterone levels and they looked at younger and older, and there was really no statistically significant difference between the groups if they had a healthy lifestyle. Like There was a subtle decline, but it wasn't statistically significant. You make a good point. If, depending on the metrics you look at, only about 3 to 7% of Americans are healthy. So the decline in our hormones is due to factors like we're not getting enough sleep. We're eating highly processed foods. We're not eating the right fats. We're not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Only 10% of Americans eat enough vegetables. 14% eat enough fruit, 12 to 14, depending on which study you look at. We're not exercising. Less than a quarter of people meet the recommendations for exercise. Right? And so we're looking at these basic things. Stress. Most Americans now report significant levels of stress. Anxiety, depression went through the roof during the pandemic and the economic unrest and then social unrest. So all of these things factor heavily into our hormone levels, but unfortunately, most people nowadays, they don't want to put in the work. They'd rather just take a quick fix, but that doesn't fix the underlying issue. All you're doing is slapping a Band-Aid on it and then hoping it goes away. Well, if the underlying problem is there and it's still festering, still getting worse, I'm giving you testosterone, it's not fixing the underlying problem. And that's just going to continue to worsen and worsen. And even in fact, the testosterone therapy, the hormone therapy may mask some of those underlying issues that are still there. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you're a pharmacist and a doctor. I mean, did your, I mean, you, so, you know, like, you know, in, in pharmacy school, we're taught to get people off of medication. You know, a lot of people don't, when I tell people like, hey, pharmacists are meant to take people off. And they're like, what, what do you mean? But like, there's this like, there's just like our culture is like, oh, there's a pill for that. There's a pill for that. There's a pill for that. I mean, has, do you think that your education as a pharmacist has kind of helped you um, 
like in the prescribing side of being a doctor? Absolutely. Because I knew the studies on the medications. I know how to read a drug trial, right? Because they taught us how to do that very well in pharmacy school. And so when I got in medical school, I was like, why are we prescribing first line for everything? Prescribe, 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 prescribe. Because if people actually knew the absolute risk reductions of medications for a lot of these conditions, they would never take another medication, right? It, because you look at the ARRs on, on a lot of things, they're pretty pathetic. Now, I'm not saying that don't take cancer therapy. If I got cancer, I'm taking immunotherapy. I'm taking chemotherapy. I'm also going to do holistic stuff like high-dose vitamin C, maybe glutathione, depending on the type, right? I'm not saying never use medication. What I'm saying is you can't use medication as your sole thing. Oh, like, like for instance, cholesterol medication. We know many times, and this is reported in, in, in literature, that people, when they start taking statins, they stop their other habits that like eating healthy, stuff like that, because like, oh, the statin's just going to take care of it. And I heard that so many times. Well, it doesn't work like that. So I'm all about using the right medication for the right person. I'm a big advocate for pharmacogenetics, looking at your genetics and, and picking a medication optimized for you, looking at your lifestyle and optimizing that you know, shared decision making. There's so many times where, yes, I've had people who come to me and say, well, I don't want to do any of that. Stuff. I don't want to exercise. I don't want to change my diet. What can you do for me? Okay, well, here's a statin. Let's not take it every day. Maybe let's take it three times a week, something like that. Because they told me like, I, I'm not going to take it every day. I'm like, okay, well, what can you do? Well, I can do it three times a week. Okay, cool. Well, let's do three times a week. I've done my job. They're doing something that they can stick with. That's not ideal in my mind, but that's the best I can do in that situation, right? Yeah, no, and I think that's one thing that people overlook a lot is um, I was talking to somebody and he's not, he didn't have a medical background and he was like, so they had a building a startup and he was like, kind of, we were talking and he just kind of like, how do you deal with patients not listening to you? You're literally trying to save their life and you're giving them basically the answers to the test. How do you deal with it? And I told him like, hey, when you throw human nature into it, the hu the human element into anything, it's gonna throw a wrench into all of it, and that's what makes that's what makes medicine hard, right? And that's why we can't be replaced with an algorithm. We can't be replaced with AI. You know, you can replace it to a certain point, but that part, the human element part, is never gonna be stripped away from medicine. Yeah, I'm actually super excited about what AI could bring to medicine because AI is gonna be able to integrate a lot of these risk factors and data super quick. And then I can look at a printout that just says, okay, this person is high risk for this, 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 and this. You don't have to worry about this. This person is not showing high risk for this, 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 and this. Okay, cool. I'm going to work with this person on a plan for the things they are high risk from and say, these are the things you don't really have to watch out for right now. Maybe we'll do another set of biomarkers in a year or so, and, and maybe this will change. And so it'll be kind of like, you know, tit for tat kind of thing. We're working on things as, as they come up. I think that's going to be the use of AI in, in medicine is creating really substantial risk profiles based upon biometrics and lifestyle me uh, measurements. And then physicians and other providers are going to take that and then create plans for people. AI will never replace all the complexities that you see in medicine and people wouldn't want that. You know, you wouldn't want to go 
to like a Starbucks medical facility on the corner that just has a robot there and the robot's telling you what to do. Like that's, there's no way. People are not gonna accept that. They're always gonna wanna hear that from a human who's looking at things, but AI is definitely going to help us and integrate all the massive amounts of data points that we see now that actually matter. There's no person that can integrate all of these things together in the way that data can. And that's why, that's why I think AI is going to be game changing for medicine. I'm looking forward to working with AI. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's where AI is going to be perfect for us. And that's why I tell people is like, don't replace us, augment us. And like you, the use case that you brought up is that's a perfect example of augmenting us. It's saving us time. It's directing us in the right direction. And then from there we can take it. And I mean, you'd be surprised how many people want to replace us with the corner Starbucks robot person. Right. I mean, but a lot of those people have never looked a patient in the eye and told them bad news or the family in the eye. Like that can't be done with a robot, right? And no one's ever looked at somebody who's, you know, really trying, has insurance has been denied, all that stuff. Like they've never physically had those conversations. So then they think like, yeah, you can replace all of us with that. And it's just not possible. No. And we know that empathy is a big factor in treatment outcomes and that that trust and that confidence that you, that rapport that you build with your physician or your provider, that matters and that drives outcomes. So that portion will, will never be replaced. But like you said, there's a lot that could be augmented. There's a lot that could be done with data aggregation. I'm excited about some things that could happen on the blockchain where people own their own medical data and it goes with them. It's not inside the system. It's actually, I have all my data and it's there on the blockchain. I can be like, oh, you need to see all my medical records? Boom, I'll zip it over to you. And now my physician has access to everything and then AI can query it and pull out the relevant stuff to that visit. That's the future that I envision for medicine and I'm excited about that. Man, you just put a smile on my face because that's like, that's like my thing. Like my startup, my, the startup that I was building was I wanted to create kind of a cloud-based system where patients control their own healthcare data. For me, patients owning their healthcare data is a huge thing because, but yeah, I do believe with you. Like, I think that's like the use case for blockchain is uh, being able to house your data and give access. And also, you know, you're able to see who's accessing, accessing your data when they're accessing it. And then on top of that, for me, like I've worked in oncology my whole career, having people, you know, their, their data is being used in all these studies and they get nothing out of it. So these people are being crippled with debt and they're being used. I mean, yeah, obviously it's helping other people, but why shouldn't they get something from it, right? Something that can help them either subsidize their therapy, you know, get some money to pay pay some bills because the reality is a lot of these people quit their jobs just so they can go on Medicaid, uh, just because they can't afford anything and they have to wait and all these things. Or they, I've, I've talked to patients that have put their house on mortgage, but that's completely, completely different topic. But yeah, man, I completely agree with you there. Um, it's great to it's great to find other people like that think that believe in that. Yep, and I agree with you. I think that we should be able to determine if our data is being sold or not. And I personally, I don't care. Sell my data. Give me a piece. Yeah. Right. If you give me a piece, I'll I'll let anybody sell my data because I I really don't care. I've got nothing to hide. I I don't care about that stuff. But I should financially benefit if you're financially benefiting off of my image right? And my likeness, it's basically like an NIL deal for sports, right? You're benefiting off information that is mine of my daily habits, my routine, my biomarkers. Just give me a piece. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think 
I don't think that's asking for a lot either. I think, I mean, like, like you said, it's already being sold. There's third party warehouses that are selling all this data. Just cut the third party out, the middleman out and just give it to the patient. Probably in the end would end up being cheaper for those drug companies and the government and all that. Yep. I completely agree. But, um, so did, was Nimbus your first startup that you started? Did you have any background in startups before that? Not to the scale. I had started small businesses before the first four small businesses I started all failed. And for numerous different reasons, the first one was actually in residency. It was like a fitness website with some blogging information and it, it just didn't work. And then the second one was an educational consulting company. We did social emotional learning. We created a 350 page curriculum. We were in 62 or 64 schools in Houston before COVID, COVID completely killed the business. And then Houston ended up being such a corrupt school district that the state took it over. So that, that kind of destroyed everything there. So that business failed. And then my first iteration of my health and wellness business failed. And then the second iteration failed. And I just kept iterating, iterating, iterating until I found what actually worked and then took all of that IP and then put it into Nimbus. So Nimbus and Script Health were the first like real startups raising, you know, pre-seed seed rounds that I had been part of the management team. And before I got involved with those, I had been consulting for companies who had gone through that. So two of my clients raised significant amounts of money. One raised 3.5 million in a, a seed round. Another client just raised 10 million on a series A. And so I'd had that background before working with these companies in a consulting capacity. Now I'm doing it as one of the, the executives on the management team. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, so what, 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 of, what part of the startup world was kind of like shock, like that kind of caught you off guard? It's slower than you think it is, <laughs> right? Everybody thinks when you start a startup, that things are happening lightning quick, like lightning fast, you know, grow, 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 grow. And all this stuff is happening super fast. It's really not. If it's happening that fast, you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably going to skip stuff. You're probably going to miss stuff. So things moved a lot slower than I thought they were, but they're still moving a lot faster than what I saw when I worked in, you know, conventional pharmacy or conventional medicine. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I think people are have this like vision of a startup, like things are changing on a daily basis. In some cases they might be like, you know, but like for the most part, like you're, it takes time to develop an app. It takes time to develop all these things. You're kind of waiting on the people to kind of get the ball rolling. I mean, the pivoting, but like you said, it, you're still work, you're still moving faster than a traditional, like, you know, company or so. Um, do you like the startup world? Obviously, I'm assuming you do. I love it. So my plan is we, we plan to have exits at Nimbus and Script Health eventually, right? That's, that's the plan. Once that happens, I would still never go back to the conventional stuff. I would just look for the next startup either I could advise for or join the management team, right? That would be kind of what I would do going forward. Yeah, no, yeah, I like the startup world a lot too, but since, uh, so let's talk about the other one, other startup that you're working, well, that you're part of, Script Health. Could you give us a little more information about that one? Yeah, so Script Health was started by uh, James Lott and uh, Jimmy Papadeus. They're the co-founders. James, I met through LinkedIn, 
and he was actually looking for a FarmD MD. And the reason he was looking for a FarmD MD was because he had started this startup and it was early on and they wanted to create a software for pharmacists to exercise prescriptive authority, but it's more than just the EHR. It's intake, it's marketing, it's CPA management. And right now we're working on billing and coding in the software as well. So it's really that end-to-end -end turnkey solution, kind of like a pharmacist prescribing business in a box. And so I was really interested in this because actually a company that I had in 2017 we looked at this problem, but we were way too early. So I had already thought about this problem for, yeah, about four years before I'd ever connected with James. And I had a ton of material already done. So when James approached me, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I've already thought about this problem. I've already diagrammed everything. Let's get to work. And so my role was advising for business development. And then also with creating all of the clinical protocols. So all the protocols are, are me and my team. We've had some interns come through. We have a scripted academy because I thought CE would be important. Some of the states require CE for you to, to start prescribing for certain conditions. Some don't. But I thought it would lend validity to the entire movement if there was uh, ACPE. I believe that's right. ACPE right? The, yeah. uh, the accrediting organization, if there was approved CE for pharmacist prescriptive authority. So that's script health in, in a nutshell. And it's been really cool and really rewarding. There's one patient testimony that we use that this patient needed an EpiPen, right? And she called up her doctor. Doctor said, well, it's going to be three months till I can see you. And she's like, it's, it's almost spring this is prime b in allergy season like i have to have this this is life-saving medication so she just happened to be at at our pharmacy and they were they're participating in script health and she said oh you know fill out this information so it'll come to your phone scan the qr code fill it out and if you're if it's okay i can actually prescribe an epipen for you so she was able to pick up her epipen and her naloxone um, for her mom right there at the pharmacy without seeing a physician. And she was so grateful. And that's the essence of why we started Script Health. James tells a story of he had a patient who had asthma and was having an asthma attack in the pharmacy. And he said, I literally have life-saving medication behind me and I can't give it to you, right? It's just that that's that was heartbreaking for him. And so... That's why he started the company. I joined the company because we know that primary care is dying. There's not enough money in it. Primary care is usually a loss leader for, for groups, right? Only 7% of all the healthcare spending goes to primary care. The, there was a study that was done recently that showed that the primary care physician would need 26.7 hours per day to provide guideline care, right? Impossible. It's impossible. It's predicted that we're going to be somewhere around 130,000 physicians short by 2034. Up to half of them are in primary care. I think it's going to be worse than that because most people aren't going into primary care because I could go specialize and double or triple my salary in two or three years. There's no other opportunity on the planet outside of maybe trading or something like that where you can double or triple your income in two or three years. So we, I joined because I see these problems I see this primary care gap and 93% of Americans live within a couple miles of a pharmacy. 
So I saw a problem, I saw a solution, and I saw really the public health benefit of activating and engaging pharmacists in the local community and providing some of these services. No, I mean, I love it. Obviously, being a pharmacist, I'm a little biased. But um, I think that pharmacies, pharmacists and these retail pharmacies are a great place to provide just, stand, you know, just your low level primary care, like, you know, kind of what you said, right? Like we are trained to look at different labs and adjust blood pressure, diabetes, medications, all these things. Like we are able to do that. It's just, um, I don't know why we don't. I don't know if it's like, and maybe you can kind of touch on this too. There's like some, there's like a group, there's people out there that say, oh, you know, they don't want pharmacists encroaching into the doctor, like primary care, because there's only so much money out there, right? They don't want piece of the pie going. Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on like that kind of, de- that kind of debate? Yeah, I think it's nonsense because there's still a lot of money out there and not enough of it's going to primary care. So we started allotting more money to primary care. Then we have all this money allotted to it and not enough people to do it. So that's the first issue is getting better access for people to have primary care because we know the statistics are very clear. The statistics are clear. If there's a primary care physician involved, outcomes are better. If there's a pharmacist involved on the case, outcomes are better. That's been shown multiple times across many different studies, right? I think a lot of pharmacists are hesitant just because it's something that they've never done before. And I also think that pharmacists, sometimes they feel marginalized. So so they feel smaller than they really are. They feel like they're not as important, not as vital as they really are. And whenever I talk to pharmacists, I'm like throwing love at them. Like you're a vital part of this community. You're a vital part of the, of the healthcare chain. You are an excellent leader. Pharmacy school was harder. I know what you're capable of because I'm one of you. So I, I'm a biggest advocate for this happening and I'm a physician. All right. So I completely agree with you. Things that can help offload primary care physicians and let them deal with a lot of the complex cases because people out out there nowadays are super sick, right? Most Americans have more than one chronic medical condition. So we, we know that people are super sick. Why not have the pharmacist deal with the high blood pressure, deal with the cholesterol, deal with diabetes, right? Why not let the pharmacist do some of these medication refills? Let them do re, uh, asthma and, and birth control, things that have well-established protocols, well-established guidelines that we're all taught as pharmacists, right? We're not asking to put a bunch of diagnostic gear, CT scans and, and you know all that kind of stuff in pharmacies right now. We're, we're just asking for, okay, people have a diagnosis or they have an acute condition like cold sore, strep, flu, something like that. Let's get these people access. Yeah, no, I could not agree with you more. And I think that it's needed. I mean, like you said, I mean, most people are closer to a pharmacy than a hospital. Like where, where I, one of the reasons why I wanted to start what I wanted to start was because of access. I mean, people would be on an ambulance for three hours to come to our hospital. That to me is ridiculous, right? I mean, and a lot of it could have been stopped if they were able to just get access and get treated for that a pneumonia or whatever, flu, whatever it happened to be that turned into full-blown something else. Like if their diabetes was better better taken care of, then they're not losing a foot. I mean, there's like so many things that require, I think, I think people take for granted that, you know, there's so many people living with high blood pressure, diabetes, like in their day-to-day life, but they don't really realize how 
bad of an effect it has on the body overall. Like over time, you're literally killing yourself faster than it needs to happen. And you, if you, seeing your physician, your primary care once a year is not going to do it. It's not going to help you anywhere, any at all. Like you need more frequent follow-ups and you need more frequent. And like a lot of these patients, they need more handholding. They just do. And the way our system is right now, it just doesn't allow for that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the integrative care, right? So if I had to design an ideal healthcare system, physicians would be diagnosing and overseeing the team. And then I would diagnose a person. I'd have a pharmacist on board who specializes in medication therapy management and pharmacogenetics. They would look at their genetics. They would talk to them. And the pharmacist would select what medication that person goes on. And then we'd have meetings, right, where we review cases. Pharmacists could, could review and follow up and deal with medication issues. Physician is triaging and adjusting the overall plan, right? I think that's a great model. I also think it's very, very important that clinicians start to think like entrepreneurs and we don't have enough touch points. You mentioned that. If you have someone come in for a yearly visit, that's it. And that's all you see in, that's not enough touch points. If you have a patient with diabetes and you're seeing them every three months, that's not enough touch points. So on average, a visit is seven minutes. You see them four times a year. That's 28 minutes you're spending with someone. That's it. That's less than a sitcom TV show to manage that person's serious medical condition. I mean, just saying that out loud, that sounds bonkers, right? It, it sounds completely bananas that that's what's happening, but that's what's happening. And so one of the things I realized early on was I needed to provide actual literature and references and things like that that people could follow once they left our visit, right? And that they could consume that content on their own time. Because we think that people are remembering everything that we say when they're in the visit. They're not. There was a recent study that I think it was almost over half, yeah. 50 or 60% of people forget their diagnoses and medications when they come out of the hospital. I very rarely ever see patients take notes and when I'm in the room. And I know they're not remembering stuff. So I've stopped even saying stuff really. And I just write it and send it to them in a message, the important stuff. That way I know they can go back and, and look at it. So these are some of the things that I think are very important. And I'm glad that you touched on them. Yeah. And I tell people, I would say like 90, I mean, you can probably speak to this a little better than I can, but I would say 90 to 90 for 5% of your healthcare is outside of like our four, controlled four walls. So like, if you think about it, like we're just telling, we are only seeing them, like you mentioned for 28 minutes. For a life-threatening disease, even though people are living with it, I'm, I'm, it's still diabetes is still a life-threatening disease, people, and they're not going to remember things. I mean, there's so much jargon that we throw out. We're not really great. I, I would, I say that we, as a community, as medical professionals, are really not good at communicating. I was reading the study where more than half of the country reads at a seventh-grade level, and only two percent of the country reads at like a what they call like a really high level, which which includes like people like us and like. So like if we're communicating to like just 2% of people, we're, we've literally lost 90% of people. So, I mean, asynchronous care is something that just needs to happen. And I love that you are doing it because it's, it's what's necessary. Like, I don't know why we don't leverage like emails, messages and things like that more often to kind of guide the patient through their journey, right? It's not telling them what to do. It's just helping them, guiding them and just even reminding them because a lot of times I think I hate the word non-compliant because 
there's so much to it, right? It, it's like a negative connotation on the patient. But a lot of times when those patients come to you, they've either just simply forgotten what you told them or they just misheard what you told them. And that's not on them. That's on us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most people don't know why they're taking a medication for what. And they also don't know how serious you know, hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol is. It may not be in that moment, but we're talking 10, 15 years from now. If you don't take care of it now, that's when it's going to show problems. I think that's, I kind of wonder this question, like, why did God make these things this way, right? Like, these diseases are not immediately fatal because people are so bad at looking in the future. Like, most Americans don't even have a savings account, right? So we know that people are really bad at doing this. And now these diseases, they think, it, you know, a heart attack comes out of nowhere. No, that process is 15 years in the making. Alzheimer's disease. Oh, this one day I woke up, my brain wasn't working so well. No, that process is 20 or 30 years in the making. All right. So I always tell people thinking about help is like thinking about investing. If someone tells you there's a problem now, take care of it. If you've got a crack on the wall, what happens? You take care of it immediately. Why? Because you instinctively know that crack on the wall could grow into something bigger and far costlier if I don't take care of it right now but we don't apply the same mentality to our health. And I think that's because we've done a really poor job of getting people to think about their future selves. Whereas the investing community has done a great job of getting people to think about, hey, put some money away, put some money away, you know, save here, do this. I think we need to have the same mentality as, as we talk about health. No, I completely agree. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you just don't see like diabetes, you don't really see hypertension. And then also with modern medicine kind of, you know, getting as good as it has, like people are just living with these diseases, right? Before, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people were literally dying, right? Of all this stuff way earlier. Now people are living for a long time and it's just like, oh, it's okay. You know, it's just, I'll just, you know, there's a lot of medication for that. I'll just take it. But like, it's not, like I tell people like, you know, if you can take care of it now, you're, you're, the end of your life is going to be way, way better than if you don't take care of it now. Right. I mean, it's, and it's sad. Like, I'm not saying that I'm the bastion of health. Like I need, I need to work on myself as well. But, um, but it's just like, I just think it's because people just don't see it. It's like cancer, right? When people hear the word cancer, it's like cancer is still to this day, um, attributed with death, right? You know, one of the one of the things that people are more scared of with cancer treatment is not necessarily like the nausea, vomiting, how bad they're going to feel. It's hair loss because it shows everyone around them outwardly like, hey, I have cancer, right? But like diabetes and like hypertension don't have that stigma to attach to it. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and that's why I'm a huge fan of using technology and monitoring. Like people ask me, are you a fan of CGMs? I'm like, absolutely because it makes things tangible and you can correlate behavior to results. And I, I like doing that because people see, oh man, I did this and my blood sugar went to this. Jeez, I probably shouldn't do that again. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of frequently monitoring blood pressure. I have a blood pressure cuff at home. I've never had high blood pressure, but guess what? Every time I see it, I check my blood pressure just to make sure I keep an eye on my pulse. You know, I keep an eye on my activity all of these things, because the more you measure and pay attention to something, the more likely you are to do something about it and get results. It's like having a budget, right? You can save money without a budget, but you're probably going to save money 
more money if you're looking at your budget, if you're paying attention to what's coming in and out. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and that's why like, I think RPM is going to be great. And that's the other reason why I think patients should really, for a couple of reasons, A, it, it, it gets us answers right away, right? We're, we're, we're seeing trends and such. But it also lets people control their own healthcare. I think one thing that healthcare, we as a healthcare community have done is taken that responsibility away from the patient and put it on ourselves when that's not the way it should be. It should be the other way around. It should, the responsibility should be on them and we are here to just help you, right? Yep. And that's because they don't teach us that in medical school. There's so many, we get, or, or pharmacy school, you get the hero complex. And I was miserable as a provider with the hero complex. And then I realized I was never designed to be a hero. I'm designed to be a guide. And, and once I accepted that, that's when everything changed because there are some people you're just not going to help, right? There are some people who they're, they're just going to continue doing what they're doing. Okay, cool. But if I can plant a seed, maybe it will grow. Maybe they'll start to think about things differently. And that's when everything really changed for me and my approach in healthcare changed. No, hundred percent. I kind of went through the same transformation where I was just like, I can't help everyone. And, but you, but what we can do is focus on the people that we can help. And it, again, and, it, and the other thing is it's their health. It's not ours. Like if I'm telling a patient to take something three times a day and they're like, oh, I work night shift and this and that, you know what? It's okay that you're not taking it exactly, you know, eight hours apart or what, I'm sorry, six hours apart. Like it's okay. Right. You know, you, you have to work within their lifestyle, not, not what you think is what you read in the book. Right. And that's like one thing that I had to learn right away when I got out of pharmacy school is people have lives that don't revolve around just textbooks. Right. You know, like you have to work around them. And then, and then that goes back to like the biggest thing in healthcare is trust. Right. You start building trust with these people, even if they're not really listening to you, as long as they like you, you still have that open, you still have that communication, that door is still open and you can, you never know, like one thing, it just might spark and they might change. And I've seen it happen in my career. Yeah, absolutely. I have too. And, and like you mentioned earlier, it's getting around to the idea that health is not inside the physician's office. Health is a culmination of what you do every single minute of every single day. That's health, your thoughts, your mindset, your process, how sedentary you are, what you eat, what you put on your body, right? The people you hang around, all of that, all of that matters. And so once we really get to people thinking like that, that their health is in their hands, that they control their health, that their health destiny is, is theirs to change, I think that's when you'll really see a dramatic change. The problem is all these healthcare groups marketed like, come to us, we'll fix everything. Come to us, we have the best doctors. Come to us, we'll take care of everything. So we've completely removed and absolved patients from responsibility when that should never have been done. No, I 100% agree with you. And I think that, and I think that we will see healthy, we would see healthier people if they had control of their healthcare, if they felt like they were part of healthcare. How many times has it been where patients say, oh, I, they, they, we're just talking at them, right? We're not talking, we're not working with them. We're just talking at them, telling them what to do. There's a very, healthcare is very patriarchal patriarchal um where it's our way or no way right it's that's how we were kind of taught in school right we're never told to like work with the patient or anything like that we're just told like hey this is what it is this is what the guideline says and this is what you have to do otherwise you're going to die right i mean that's it's one or it's uh, it's that or the other that's nothing in the middle but um yeah i mean we kind of went i mean i i love this conversation i think more people need to have it but i do want to touch on 
kind of the clinician's viewpoint in a health tech startup and how important that is. And since, you know, you are a clinician and you are part of multiple startups, like what do you think being a clinician has helped you in the startup journey, especially like health tech startups? Yeah, I think this is interesting because you see a lot of debate on LinkedIn about this right now. Is is a clinician necessary in a healthcare startup? Depends on your goal. If your goal is to, you know, become a unicorn and have a massive exit, you don't need a clinician. If your goal is actually to make a product that helps people and helps the system, then you need a clinician. So I can tell based upon who they have in their executive team or their advisors, do they actually care about solving a problem? Do they actually care about the patient experience, the clinician experience, or do they just see a problem in a way to make a lot of money? So I obviously prefer having a healthcare provider on the team because they're gonna be able to navigate the intricacies of healthcare. Healthcare is such a different business that you can't really understand it unless you've been in it. The numbers don't tell you anything. They, they, they don't tell you the patient dynamics. They don't tell you the heartache and, and the struggle and, and the problems that you have when you're on the ground and you're working with large teams of people, right? You know, most of the time you have to realize as, as an internal medicine physician, if I'm taking care of 20 patients and I've got five patients in the ER, I may be working on any given day with 100 plus people having multiple different interactions and multiple phone calls, that just doesn't happen anywhere else, right? So you need someone who's been there, who's done that to really make sure that what you're building isn't just some nice shiny new toy, but it's actually going to improve outcomes, whether that's for the patient, whether that's financial, whether that's for the provider. And ideally, it should be a solution that improves outcomes for all of the stakeholders involved. Yeah, no, I tell people that there's three things. It's like the Holy Trinity in healthcare. You either have to save them time, give them time back, make them money or save them money and patient outcomes. And patient outcomes should always be mixed with the other ones, right? You, that should always be your number one thing. And then after that, and I think that having clinicians on board kind of magnifies like, hey, what are we actually doing here? Like you mentioned, are we just here to make money or are we here to actually help people? Because healthcare is not about making money as much as people are, I mean, right now people are really trying to, to make it make money and all this stuff, all these businesses are coming in, but we all got into it for various different reasons, but majority of us stayed here because we wanted to help people. And I think that's what a lot of these startups, I mean, Google, Amazon, all these people have failed miserably in public because they just never understood that. And they're continuously coming in. Now, Amazon is just buying it, whatever, whatever thing they can just to kind of make it work. But I completely agree with you. I think that and I, and I never thought of it the way you said it. I think the way you said it is perfect. And um, I think that's what I'm going to start, start telling people when they say, oh, we don't need a clinician. I'm like, well, okay, fine. If you want to make money, that's fine. But if you really want to help people, you really need one of somebody like us in there. Yep, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, and then you also said that you um, do some investing. So what kind of investing do you do? do what kind of investing do you do? do you do like pre-seed, like angel investing? Are you part of like a, a VC type thing? Yeah, mostly angel and pre-seed. So when I started getting in the consulting world for these startups, I would hear about, uh, oh, so-and-so's, you know, raising friends and family round or pre-seed or something like that, right? And I would look at it. And most of the time, I would jump on as an advisor and an investor. So I only invested in projects I felt like I could help 
And I did that because then I could really understand what was going on. And it means that it had it was a problem in an area that I knew. All right. I didn't want to invest in things that I don't I didn't really know what was going on or whatnot. So, you know, it's not like a big shop or anything like that. I think I've invested about two hundred thousand dollars in the last three or four years, right? And and the four or five different um health tech startups. So you know, nothing big if it if it works out right, and I you know I hit on you know four out of five of them, then okay, one of the things I might do in the future is actually start up a shop, right? Because then I have a track record. Not only did I advise these companies, I invested in these companies, right? So that could carry some momentum going forward. So we'll see what the future holds, but it's an option that I'm considering. Yeah, no, and um, so you've kind of been like everywhere. You've started it, you've been advising, and now you're investing. You've kind of seen all all the avenues of it in terms of the investing side there's a lot of there's a lot of health tech startups that kind of are trying to figure out like is the vc route better the angel investing route better or do we just boot, bootstrap i mean i have my own opinions on this but like what what are your what do you tell these what do you tell health tech startups it depends to me the 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 number one thing there is how fast do you want to grow or maybe it's not want to grow it's how fast do you need to grow because sometimes it's you need to grow fast because you have competitors or things like that or market forces are not ideally in your favor to grow slowly. In that case, you're going to need people with deep pockets, right? If you're in a situation where there's not a need to grow fast or you don't want to grow fast, then you can be really selective with the capital that you bring on. Right. I think a lot of times what I've seen is is people will bring on the wrong capital partners, and that's just a death sentence. If, if you're bringing on partners who in your incentives and, and your vision aren't aligned. So again, like, like most things, I don't think there's one best strategy. There's a, you have to pick the route that's best aligned with your business model and where you want to go. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And uh, so like, is when you're investing in a company, is there something that you're looking for specifically outside of, because I'm sure like there are companies that you could have possibly helped, but you were like, uh, I don't know if this is the right thing for me. Yeah, it's, I didn't, the number one thing was, what problem are you trying to solve? Most of the companies that I've invested in, I saw that problem when I was working in healthcare. And I, I thought about, man, it would be really great if someone had a solution to this problem. So as soon as they come to me and like, boom, that's a problem I identified, cool. Then I know it's a problem because I've been boots on the ground. I've dealt with this problem. I can help you from a clinical perspective with this problem. So that's really the only criteria for me. Okay, yeah. No, no. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because we know the problem exists. And if we can figure, if we can figure it out, it's going to be, I mean, you can, if you're experiencing it, pretty much every, every healthcare professional is experiencing it. But um, I just right. want to end this with just one last question. What kind of advice would you have given yourself um, as you were entering, I guess, pharmacy school? <laughs> You've entered a lot of different worlds, but like when you were starting, like what, what advice would you have given yourself what you, about what you know now with what all you know now, actually? Uh, if, if it was just pure hindsight, I would have told myself, get that PharmD MBA, right? You would have saved yourself <laughs> some time on, on the back end. I, I thought about it. Um, the advice I'd give myself in pharmacy school was be more open when you go to medical school, because I kind of, I kind of zoned in on internal medicine. 
I probably would have done something different if if I was just going to be a physician. So that that's pretty much the only thing. And then as far as mindset goes, I would have told myself to start reading early because I didn't really start reading books until how old was I? 32. Right. And that, that was way too late. I wish I had read a lot of the, the self-help books, the mindset books, the business books when I was coming up earlier, because those really helped and changed my mindset. Yeah, no, I, I just literally started reading books maybe like a couple of years ago. So I completely agree with any books that you recommend. There are a couple of foundational books for me. Uh, number one is Black Swan by Taleb. That, that changed the way I thought about risk. Uh, if you're going into business, Ready, Fire, Aim by Michael Masterson is a, is a powerhouse book on business. Uh, Mindset by uh, Carol Dweck is an excellent book about the growth mindset and how you can achieve it in different situations. Uh, any of Brene Brown's books, if you're dealing with shame or guilt, they, they are excellent books um, for emotional regulation. Um, there's so many more, but that, that's where I'd start. Recently, my favorite book is The Power of One More by Ed Milet. Great book. Um, very, very transformational. And then if you're looking for habit change, uh, Atomic Habits and um, The Power of Habit by uh, Atomic Habits is by James Clear and A Power of Habit is by Charles Duhigg. Excellent books on the science of habits and how you change habits. So those are some of the foundational ones that are on my recommended reading list. Yeah, no, I've heard some about some of them, but I'll have to check out the other ones uh, that I have not heard of. But thank you, man. That was amazing. For people who want to reach out to you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, most active on Instagram at drharrismd. I'm also active on LinkedIn, uh, just under my name, or at drharrismd as well. Those are the best places to interact with me. And, you know, that's where I post all of my uh, quick bites, just little quick study reviews for people yeah awesome man um thank you so much for your time yeah i really appreciate you having me on the show today